This is the Get a Life Podcast. X Cult Conversations. Lane and Cheryl, Richard and Carmen, we're all here today. We had a guest that had a family emergency and couldn't make it onto the show today. So we decided to go with a listener's request, and that was to hear our stories, what it was like right after we left, what we experienced, and whether it was a positive or negative experience. Um, so we're going to get right into that. And thanks again for listening. Richard. Thank you, Lane. Um, it, it's quite a big subject. Um, I'm sure we all had a whole, um, an enormous number of new experiences um, after we left. Um, it was, you kind of learn several new things every single day in those first couple of years because uh, growing up in a very, very sheltered environment, I mean, sheltered in one sense, sheltered from the outside world, not sheltered from the problems on the inside of the, the brethren. Uh, in some ways, it's like being born at whatever age you leave, which in my case was 46 years old. Uh, so many things you just completely naive about. Um, I suppose one of the most difficult things you have to overcome is social interactions. Uh, having been brainwashed into regarding people outside the cult as being somehow inherently dirty and dangerous, um, you have these inhibitions that, although rationally you know at that point that it's not true and they're just ordinary people, just like I am myself, you have these very strong inhibitions in, in communicating with them in a friendly way and you're always subconsciously expecting something bad to happen, um, particularly when it comes to eating with um, people. Uh, you have a very, very strong inhibition against eating with people that, that aren't in the brethren. Um, it sounds crazy and it must be hard for anyone who hasn't been in this kind of controlling cult to understand. But every time I actually sat down, had a meal uh, after I'd left the brethren and, you know, I was sharing a table, sharing a meal with obviously non-brethren people, I'd have this very bad guilty feeling. And, and it took maybe a year or two for that to actually go away so I could actually enjoy a meal without this shadow on my mind that was telling me I was doing something wrong and guilty and, and wicked. Um, and of course that applies to all sorts of, all sorts of different things. I mean, you, you naturally, when you leave, you, you go and try new things, uh, things that were not permitted in the brethren, but it's, although rationally your mind knows there's no reason why you should do it, you still have those inhibitions that have been kind of ingrained and drilled into your mind right from as, as far as you can remember. Um, I was, I suppose I expected people in the world at large to be um, a lot less friendly and a lot less helpful than <laughs> I actually found them to be. Um, yeah. And that was, you know, one of the revelations to me. And it was a, a wonderful discovery, really, just to find out 
the spirit of generosity in the in the people that I met and that I told my story to. Um, I mean, I'm naturally not a particularly outgoing person, and being launched into the world, you know, as a single male, 47, no job, no money, is not, you know, an easy start for making new friends. Um, so I, I joined a, a social clubs wherever I ended up. There was a, I forget what it's called, but there's a kind of an online um, app or program whereby people can set up social clubs, whether it's for doing walks or playing chess or discussing things. Um, and so I'd, I'd look up one of those and I'd just pick kind of a neutral one that was, um, oh. you know, meeting up at restaurants for conversation. Basically, a sort of a singles club, but not particularly for dating, just for yeah. people who wanted some company. Uh, and they tended to be populated by people in their 60s, I suppose, would have been. 60 would have been about the average age. And it was just a grab bag of, of the odds and ends of society. Um, people who were on their own for various reasons. I mean, some were divorced, some were just not the marrying type. Uh, there were some married couples in there as well, I suppose, but um, it was a pretty interesting cross-section of society. Um, and that's kind of where I started to meet people. Um, I joined one in England in Norfolk that was a walking club and we would go on walks uh, maybe two days a week. One of the, you know, the club organizer would um, send us all directions, we'd meet up and we'd walk for 10 miles through the countryside and talk. And it was actually a really good way of getting to know people. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, one particular lady there, she would have been mid 60s, kind of took pity on me. Um, she was a widow. Her husband had been alcoholic. She'd had a difficult life. Her son had um, emigrated to Canada curiously so she was a bit on her own which is why she joined this club and she kind of took me in and had me for meals and introduced me to her friends and um you know just showed a lot of kindness um and compassion to me which was you know a real lifesaver in the circumstances yeah and um same same when I moved to Canada I joined these the club and met with all sorts of interesting people. We went out for meals in restaurants and that's how I kind of eased my way into having a, a social life. Because obviously when you leave the cult, you have absolutely zero social life, nothing, nothing at all. You have to start from scratch. I just um, got to say that was, a, that was a really smart way to do it, to go and, and introduce yourself to so different social groups by doing that. Yeah, That's really smart. One of the other questions that we had from um, a viewer was like how we got out. How can you explain how you got out of the PBCC? That's a, that's a bit of a complicated story. Um, essentially, um, I was working for Brethren Business and found that it was it was doing a really really nasty and dangerous fraud. Um, on the British National Health Service. It was um, a multi-million dollar fraud and it was endangering people's lives. Um, 
Uh, and in the brethren, there's, there's this um, rule that you do not, you know, if you do discover something illegal or you find that another brethren member is doing something illegal or um, fraudulent, you do not report it to the authorities. You, you take it along to your local priest, your local prominent brother, and it's all dealt with in-house. Um, now, I had seen enough. You know, although at that point I was still, you know, believed in the whole brethren thing, you know, I believed they were God's chosen people and so on. I'd kind of seen enough of the Hales administration to have a gut feeling that if I reported this only to the to the brethren, that it would be covered up rather than being dealt with. The brethren are exceedingly precious about their reputation. Uh, anything that might reflect on the brethren as a whole is is covered up regardless of the consequences to um, anyone else. And I mean, this is obviously particularly true of um, these these horrific cases of sexual abuse of children, that the brethren cover it up because they are afraid that if they report it to the police, then it will reflect on the brethren as a whole. Um, and, and but it's also true of um, financial irregularities and fraud and all sorts of other wickedness that brethren get up get up to. Um, this particular case that I came across also involved the Hales family directly. They were they were business partners and they were involved in it. Um, so I had this. Um, dilemma as to whether to kind of keep my head down just before ah. in the brethren and you know Sorry. basically accept it was going to be cover up and Stop let it. it proceed or whether to take it to the authorities knowing that if I did take it to the authorities I would be severely punished by the brethren for for having done that so um, I'm going to go investigate yep but, but given given that the thing was life-threatening, it wasn't just a financial fraud, it was a, a medical fraud, it was it threatened the lives of of, of hospital patients. I, I couldn't have it on my conscience to uh, participate in a cover-up. So I I wrote a I did a report, it was a four or five-page report outlining everything I discovered, all the evidence, put it all in there, and I sent it simultaneously to several National Health Service hospitals that were using the equipment um, to the health and safety executive and also to uh, some leading brethren in the place, you know, the locality where I was working and where I was local in Cambridge. And uh, sure enough, before I even got home that day, having sent that email, there were two priests on the doorstep in a state of extreme wow. agitation. Um, so that was, you know, that was my point of departure. They, they eventually conceded that if I was to make public confession of treachery and unbrotherliness for having made this report, if I was to confess to that, you know, in my local meeting in front of 200 brethren, they, they might forgive me, but I wasn't prepared to do that. I said that would be lying to the brethren because I'm not repentant about this. I'd, I'd do the same again if the same 
happen. So that was when I left. What um, was the biggest sin in their eyes? The fact that you took it outside of the brethren? Is that what? Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. So yeah. they didn't take issue with what you reported. They took issue with the fact that you took it outside the brethren. Oh, exactly, yes. No, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it was shoot the messenger. Um, yeah. And I think it's really good to point that out in that, in that is that we have, you know, you get people suggesting, you know, getting social services involved in, in some of these cases and um, having outside help go in and, and help and help some of these localities with their situations. Yeah. And I think it's good to point out exactly with what, how you're, how you are laying this out for people to understand that it's really impossible. Like, yeah, you can't. Yeah. You just can't. You can't just no. go and send in somebody to fix or rescue something because it just doesn't work like that. Mm. Yeah. And uh, no, I mean, it was interesting because the the, the facts of the the facts of the fraud were so bad that a number of my local brethren in Cambridge were very upset by it and felt very strongly the same way as I did that this was a matter for. You know that had to be resolved and you know the they should immediately stop supplying this equipment they should inform all the hospitals what had happened um but of course the matter goes up to the Haleses um was sent over to bruce hales and of course they were completely overruled they were told you know sit down shut up we're looking yeah. after this and and the guy was allowed to carry on i mean still is still is carrying on with the same equipment and the same fraudulent claims. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you can relate this to your story though, Carmen, if we, if we try, you know, go into your story and, and, you know, exactly the kind of same, same kind of thing where you're trying to bring something up and then you end up <laughs> completely yeah. being the, the devil instead of the one who's just asking for help. Go ahead and tell the viewers, how did, like, how did you get out? And, um, just kind of explain how it was for you after you left and you know some of the biggest things that you've had to overcome and the positives that you finally feel now from being out i mean for us um obviously the same sort of thing that's what kind of surprises me um you're not supposed to take you're not supposed to take offense with things you're not supposed to point up what's wrong they would rather bury it um for us the consequence of, of pointing up what was wrong and pointing up the way, you know, young people were treated got us um, four and a half months worth of yelling in every single meeting. <laughs> and, you know, not only us that, that um, suffered through that, everybody else that was sitting there had to listen to it. Yeah. So I'm sure they were as sick and tired of it as we were um, until we picked up and moved. And when we went to Winnipeg, we chose to go to Winnipeg because I had family there that said, oh, this doesn't happen in Winnipeg. And lo and behold, it does happen in Winnipeg. It's just that maybe not as pronounced, but it was still there. The same division, the same nastiness, the same don't report anything. Um, don't tell us when things are wrong. We just want to bury everything. Um, mm. So we found out very shortly that it was the same thing there. So we spent three years planning on leaving. Wow, that's a long time. So yeah. you spent three years planning it. 
What's well, for two years, things? we never attended a meeting. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two years. I mean, and you take those young people that we reported on, they might miss a meeting or two meetings, or they might stay out till 3 a.m. and they were kicked out. Mm. You know, but what did you do in that two years? Like what, 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 what went into your plan, your planning in those two years? In those two years, we put up a wall between us and them. And we lived our lives on this side of the wall and they lived their lives on that side of the wall. Um, during those two years, um, the kids, the kids had already started to see that, you know, they were done with the friendships inside there because, because it, the judgment and the nastiness was so nasty in there. Um, I took them to a completely different school. Um, and that school, I had to do a 45 minute school run four times a day. Um, which, you know, that was a long drive, but it was sure a whole lot more peaceful. I wasn't getting calls from the school, but my kids were getting beat up for, for, for belonging to the PBCC. I mean, that's what it really boiled down to. So once they got in their new school, they started making friendships over there and I started working over there. Heaven forbid a sister working. Um, but it was actually quite pleasant because that's how I sort of built a social circle around myself. Um, it worked great for us because I was at school. Then I didn't have to do the school runs as much. I was at the school 24-7, the same hours as the kids were at school. Huh. So, Did you make friends with parents and stuff there? Oh, yes. Parents, students, other teachers. Yeah. Good. So that was your first kind of social circle. Yes, that was. Yeah. And it actually, it's what amazing some... how easy it is. You know, everybody was so accepting. Way more than the Brethren are. Way more than the Brethren in Winnipeg were, for sure. Yeah. Now, <laughs> they didn't tell, want anything new in their circle. <laughs> tell, uh, tell the listeners some of those first things that you tried when you were like, oh, we're not going back, we're, we're out, so, so I can do this now. What are some of those first things that you tried? Um... You know what's funny when you when you leave as a family and take all your kids, I'm sure it's everything we did was new. And the kids were so delighted. Our first Christmas in Tennessee, they took their hard-earned paper out money and they bought every single person, even the neighbors, Christmas uh, presents because they really? were so excited. <laughs> oh, that is adorable. That is yeah. amazing. See, like yeah. that's unity and love, not hatred and separation. It's they were so excited. Grandma had to go buy a brand new Christmas tree and they decorated it and it looked like something from Charlie Brown, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the ornaments were all on one side and the tinsel was all down the back side. And but but they did it and they were they were over the moon thrilled to so do it. This was our first Christmas. Life. I'll never forget that first Christmas. It was awesome. That's yeah. A, that's an awesome story. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, huh. so. My uh, my leaving was was different. I was planning it since I was probably thirteen because I was like, I watched my first war movie and was hooked. You know, I was like, I have to join the military. And but they um, they kind of beat me to it. So I was. It was literally. It was April two thousand and eight. Two months after I turned eighteen. And they confined me. 
and which is shut up, which is the first level where you, your family at home can no longer go to church. You're no longer allowed to associate with anyone else inside the church. Your whole social circle just collapses overnight. Every friend I had just gone like that, like couldn't talk to me. But I was already not going to meeting, right? Church every night. So I was. How long had you been doing that? Since I was probably about 16 is when I slowly started going, maybe like, you know, skipping some here and there. And then 16 to 18, you know, by, by 18, I was going maybe once a month. month. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why they confined you then was because you weren't going to meeting? No, they confined me because I was, the the reasons they used, so it was Randy and Derek Cowie, and I think my uncle, Johnny Fossey, that came to confine me. And they said, because I was attending worthy places, which was, I was going to bars and watching the hockey games. And I was totally open about that. And I was like, yep, I sure am. And (laughs) then they said, because you're part of a brethren within the brethren. And I was like, oh, am I in a gang I don't know about? So this was because being this group of friends throughout North America, all these rebel kids that were, that were probably four or five years older than me. So they were a little older and they all talked about leaving all the time. And I was allowed in this group and I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to leave too. And uh, so none of them left and I'm the only one. But um, (laughs) Anyway. I'm serious, dead serious. So they accused me of being part of a brethren within the brethren. And I laughed and I said, thank you. I said, I'm never coming back. And I walked out and left. I was very angry at them. And I was like, you know, pissed off kind of. And my parents were kind and said, they were, while they were crying and stuff at first, my mom was, and we're going to stick with you as long as it takes. Well, actually that was six months. So not quite the truth, mom. Um, and so what happened was my brothers, my older brother, and my younger brother, Lee and Jim, they had to move out. So they moved out and stayed at my uncle's house so that they could still go to church every day. Now, try and break that down in your mind into how that makes sense. That means that the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church think that sin is contagious. Let that sink into your mind. Somehow, me going to bars and being with the brethren and brethren in the same house as my brothers contaminated them so much that they had to move out. It's definitely not a pressure tactic, right? Yeah, so then, and my little sisters, Tammy and Teresa, they had to go to my grandparents' house before they could go to church. They went about once or twice a week. And they had to go and cleanse themselves by walking into my grandparents' house and then out. I'm not making this up. This is a, they actually do this stuff. It's insane. No, I can confirm that. I can confirm that 100%. In fact, they went even a step further in my case. At one point, they put me in the basement of Don Gregg's house. And Don Gregg was my priest. He's an old brother. Um, This was at a point where I was kind of feeling suicidal. So they were worried about me being on my own in because I was in my business premises. So they put me in. They said, look, you can come and sleep in in the basement here. So I went and slept in the basement and fair enough, did that. Uh, And then Don Gregg comes to me and he says, 
um, I, I've been told, and he was a bit embarrassed about this. He said, you'll have to come in the back door when you come and go, because we can't go out to the meeting through the same door that you're coming in and out of. <laughs> See, this is this is how the insanity that it is. So you can't even make so, this shit up. No, no, it can't. I actually think I'm it's contagious. Air conditioning, you know, their air conditioning recirculated the air through the basement and through the upstairs. <laughs> so they were actually breathing the same air that I'd breathed. I don't know whether they put thin filters in on the furnace <laughs> or, or what, but um, I yeah. We had, we had a, uh, once, uh, this is just before I got confined, actually, I think we had a, um, uh, a relative that got confined and they, my dad said he can come and stay in the basement. So they, we had like a, it was kind of like an apartment down there, right? My two brothers had rooms down there and there was a little kitchenette. Well, he was allowed to move in down there. My brothers were moved out. So maybe it was after I was confined. So there's two confined people, a lot of sin in this house, right? <laughs> and my dad went and the door that connected in the basement, he screwed it shut. <laughs> Which is like, I, I remember thinking in my head, like he's not using this door. He has another door to go outside. So if he's not using the door, would screwing it shut, like, like do ghosts not go under doors? <laughs> like I was so confused. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's just a, it's just a message to the guy down there. Screw you, isn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. There's so many stories that have come up too of um, kids that were confined in the basement of their parents' house when all the other kids were moved out, and that their their suppers would be left for them at the top of the stairs, and they, that's how they would get their food, and they'd have to go back it's, downstairs. It's funny, but it's not even funny. like it's, it's, it's like, not funny. It's funny that it's it's like this is actually happening like how can this be happening you know you gotta laugh or you're gonna cry right oh. that's what i'm doing <laughs> and it was ridiculous so so i got so i'm confined and i am going out and i'm going to the same bars and i went there so often there's so many hockey games watching the games there that i became friends with the bartenders i became friends with the waiters and waitresses i became friends with a lot of people that went there regulars right and I was just taken in as this friend. Like I just instantly like made friends with them and became, I was invited to poker games and I was doing all this stuff that I knew was not supposed to be doing it. But the thing is, in a way I'd given up on myself. I was like, there is like, I don't care about sinning because I'd, you know, had sex when I was underage with that woman. And you know, she convinced me to do that. And, I, and it kind of just like, I was like, well, I committed this such an awful sin of adultery. You know, I thought I'd committed adultery. And I was like, I'm just going to hell. And I'd also once had a bad thought about the Holy Spirit, which in the brethren, uh, or they teach that there's this one sin that you can't be forgiven for. And it was, if you say anything bad about the Holy Spirit, and I thought a bad thought about the Holy Spirit before when I was a kid. So I was like, I'm done. I'm going to hell. I may as well have fun. So when I first got confined, it was bars and partying, taking lemos to clubs at night downtown Montreal. I was 
meeting friends and I had uh, I had my mom's debit card sometimes. So I was, you know, Mr. Buy the booze and bring it to all the parties. And I had a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie. Like I had a blast. I made some lifelong friends. I met some shitty people, but mostly I met amazing people. And the, the majority of those first people that I met out, I'm still friends with today. And I'm going to be visiting at Christmas. And like, that's the kind of friends that I made. They became like family, right? And I would have people over to my house. My house was just open all the time. Like I had people in my house all the time. And I was just like fascinated at how many, how close and how friendly everyone was. And they all wanted, they all knew I was from the call because I would tell people, I'd be like, hey, guess what, you know? And they'd be like, really? I had no idea. And I always loved that because that meant that I was assimilating well. But they would show me new things. They'd be like, Lane, have you done this yet? Like, let's go to the fancy restaurant downtown where they, the Greeks break plates, you know, after dinner. And I was like, whoa, like, like I'm shocked, you know? I remember, and I still love it to this day, fine dining. Like a nice restaurant to me, I, I just love it. The whole experience because it just felt bad to me. Like when I was first out, we were not allowed to go to restaurants, right? So restaurants and bars became my social circle and I'm sorry but I don't regret it at all like did I drink a ton and too much yes yes I did right but I was in my early 20s and I just came out of a cult and that's exactly what I was meant to do at that time and uh you know I I had a lot of fun um and it was the experiences that blew my mind like right when I was first out and my and this cousin was out and he's like let's go to cuba and i'm like whoa right and i'm like what's cuba he's like this, this thing's called all inclusive so he sends me the link and i book it boom it was like 1100 bucks for like a two and a half star all-inclusive hotel in cuba <laughs> right and i'm 18 years old and i'm like maybe confined like three or four months my parents find out they're freaking I'm getting letters from from people in the church begging me not to go to a communist country like please. <laughs> so sad you know and I'm like this is just fuel for the fire like tell me no more right? yeah the more they told me not to go really there, good if they don't want me to go exactly and because everything else they told me not to do seems to be really 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 fun and I got to Cuba and that's what really just like blew my mind I saw poverty like I'd never seen it before but I also saw people happier than the happiest brethren family and I'm like you guys are sh we're sharing a cup of water because you don't have enough plastic cups to go around the family and I'm just so humbled by that and I'm doing that looking around and I'm going how are you guys smiling and happier than my family that says that they're the chosen people right? And that opened my eyes and the beaches, eating at all I could eat, you know, and all I could drink. I had such an amazing time. That was like, I was like, if this is anything like life on the outside, like, oh my God, you know, like I can't get enough of this. And I went to Cuba five times in probably about three years. Yeah. You you actually we have a you did a documentary too right in uh, back in two thousand and fifteen <clears throat> yeah um, 
yeah, 2015. I was still in the Navy at that time and I had to get permission from the uh, military to do that film and I did. And um, we filmed it with a friend who's been a friend most of my life since I was about 16. Um, Mitch Staffier was the director and he was the brains behind it. He was the one that heard my story and decided that he wanted to make a documentary. Um, and he worked for years to get funding for it. And finally CBC funded it and we filmed it. And it was really hard. The ending was hard because we went and tried to go to my brother's house. We went and tried to go back into church just for fun. That part was fun. We have that um, clip. Do you want me to show it? Yeah, sure. So yeah, just kind of give it like a setup as you're, you're going back, you're trying to see so, if you can go back. So during the film, we're meeting ex-members and I meet up with a friend of mine and uh, he's, a, he's an ex-member as well. I'll just say Walter. And um, me and him, uh, you know, had some drinks together. We hadn't seen each other a long time. And we were like, let's go back. Let's try and go in just for fun. So we had hidden mics on. The film crew was hidden in a van. And we attempt to go back into the Plymouth Brethren okay, Christian let's just play Church. Let's this. <laughs> <laughs> just be like, hey. Like, we were just, we were just talking. That that's your dad? So why don't you talk to him? It, the audio gets better in a second. They had to literally, the audio person that was recording had to hide in the bushes while we were doing this to be able to capture the sound. Probably like, oh, no, these two kids come back in church. Yeah, like, all hang back. No, 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 don't hang back. I was nervous. I was nervous. I bet you were. Oh. So as we walk up, Walter's dad actually comes out and speaks to us. And the cameras can't record that because otherwise they'd see us. So it's just audio. Um, but here, take a listen. Yes. Yeah, that's my dad. Yeah. Anyway, we figured we would just ask. You know, I understand if we can't. But, but you know, I can bend you boys. We were just wondering if we could sit in the back row, something like that. Towards the assembly. But if your heart is anywhere in the world, any link in the world, here to just see what it's like. I just saw it like not tomorrow, right? I know it's like so you've got you've got you got young men living in the house with you, right? Yeah, I mean I got roommates, yes. Yeah, because Walter had roommates. <laughs> Poor old links. So <laughs> he was he was basically asking if we had any links. Wow, you don't belong in this evil world. Each of you children in the assembly that not before. That is God's own sovereign act. It is none of our business to do anything else. 
so you can yeah. see there um like the the gibberish rhetoric that the plymouth brethren use right he was like do you have any links it, it would matter if your heart's in the world oh i'm sorry what planet do you think my heart is on <laughs> what other world where would it be like come on and you know and do you have any links to the world what the hell does a link mean if, if i if i plug my if i fill up my gas car right like the hose is connected to a worldly thing i wear rubber tires on my cars i walk in shoes connected to the world there's nothing that's unconnected from the world <laughs> like it and they talked about these links and then um so they they went in and actually had an assembly meeting while we were waiting outside to see if we could come in and listen to the meeting and they came out and guess what the vote was no of course not <laughs> right and we knew that and i wanted to show that in the documentary that this church no matter what even though we pretended to be sorry and we were all like come on we just want to sit in the back row we just wanted to sit and listen to jesus talk and it was like no why why aren't what are you hiding that's so that's so secret you know hey, and that is not that, the mainstream christian church <laughs> nope and it's and listen to the gibberish right the gibberish gives it away oh well we commend your exercise buddy you probably haven't exercised ever okay <laughs> my brethren don't believe in exercise for some reason Oh, anyway, it's a very good documentary, though. It it had me in tears in quite a few few places because it just really, it really relates to what um, young kids go through when they leave. Um, it, it is. It's just there's a lot of heart wrenching stuff in there. Um, I thought my family was gonna was gonna talk to me at least, like, and then at the end, you know, I go and I call Lee, my brother. And I tell him, um, I'm in town, I want to talk to you, right? And I suspected this it was going to be some bullshit. I was even scared they might say no. But finally he says, mm, okay, fine. Calls back and forth, back and forth. Finally, okay, you can come over. So I go, I'm expecting to see the family, right? But no, it's just Lee and his wife ready to ambush me. And they'd already, they wouldn't even let me see their daughter. Um, my niece, they wouldn't let me see her. They, my sister, my brother had to take her. And um, I was wearing a wire because I wanted to show the world how fucked up these people really are. And I think that that recording kind of captures it. The whole yeah. recording isn't in the movie, um, but, but some parts of it are, some important <laughs> parts. And you hear me talking to my brother and you hear him blame me for my parents being not well mentally or something yeah. and um and blame me for their anxiety and i was like no lee that's guilt um and he you know says it's my fault and and look what i've done to my family and look what i've done to the parents and and the assembly's beautiful now and it's great and i was like oh really and then i said to him i said what about the woman i was like what about the woman that sexed me underage you know and uh, I named her and everything. And he's like, well, well, I didn't know about that. I was like, well, so you're going to church with a pedophile. Like, and they just, you know, in the end, he showed me a picture of, of my niece and that just broke my heart. And I started just bawling my eyes out and I left. I had to walk out of the house. I was just like, there's, 
it's nothing. And he's just like, gave me, he grabs me and gives me a hug as I was leaving. He's like, just don't go to hell. And I was like, ah, oh, there's no such place. But, you know, I just didn't have the guts to tell him. But he was bawling because he was literally, I think he, that, that fear, he had actual fear that I was going to go and this entity is going to like yeah. fuck me with a pitchfork for eternity or something. Like, seriously, that's what he was terrified that I was going to go to hell. Like, I'm like, you're not upset that you haven't seen me in, in 10 years or, or anything. You're, you're terrified that I'm going to hell. And it was just like, it was a really sad <laughs> meeting. Um, my parents refused to see me. They said they couldn't handle it. And um, that was the end of the film. You know, I tried to talk to them and they're just, they're not, it's, they're just not, they're like in a, another dimension and you just yeah. it can't get through. Yeah. But we, um, we should put a link, a link to that. Yeah, we'll put a link to it. It's called The Devil's Trap and we'll put a link at the end of it. I relate to yeah. you, Lane, when you talk about getting blamed for your, your parents' sickness. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, um, I, I was end up, I was end up pushed out. Right. So I ended up leaving on my own, but I left on, I left because I felt I had no other choice. Um, one of our last priestly visits that we ever had was a very huge intimidation uh, factor that they used on our family. And um, they came before, they came before meeting and had this big, long, priestly visit and my mom ended up standing up to them we got shut up and then because we were crying so much they unshut us up and then made us walk into to, to church half an hour late with four priests and our family so of course I mean it was just it was embarrassing but that next morning we had Walter Drever um, come to our, our doorstep in tears and said that there was nothing more that he could do and his hands were tied and so I, at that point, had, had made the choice I was going to take my own life, and um, I didn't see a way out of it. Obviously, that was stopped. Uh, my mom had found my, my, my suicide poem, and um, I rerouted things and noticed that there was another girl that was struggling at the same time as me, and of course, it was actually... Um, Sarah, so Uncle Walter's, our, our leaders, his granddaughter was struggling. So I just want to get this out here to everybody who blames me for Sarah leaving. <laughs> I did not make Sarah leave. Sarah was already struggling. We partnered up because we had the same wounds. Um, I am, I am, I am very much looked down on because I took the priest granddaughter with me and it wasn't like that. <laughs> Anyhow. But aren't you glad you, I mean, even if it was, you <laughs> saved someone. That's true. That is true. <laughs> that is a good way of looking at it. And what yeah, age I mean, like were you guys? Pardon? What age were you guys? So um, I was 17 and Sarah was 15 when we left. And yeah. so we had planned, we had, we had, we had planned to do this leaving. We uh, got our apartment set up with uh, the librarian at Sydney school and she had an apartment for us. And so we got it all set up. We're quite sure exactly when we were getting to leave, but we, I was invited to Ellen Drever's house for, um, it was a Sunday supper thing, how they always do that. And I hadn't been at his house for a long time. And um, when we when we were told that that's where I had to go, I was like, yeah, no, Sarah, we're leaving. 
we're leaving Saturday. We're leaving Saturday, September 12, 1992. So the night before, I got a hold of my cousin who was already out. I had pushed three garbage bagfuls of clothes out my window in the middle of the night. I had written my parents uh, like 18-page letter. And we had care meeting that morning. So it's where you're supposed to take care of all the matters, right? And um, I appreciate it was care meeting. Anyhow, we... When we, when we decided to leave, I shoved my, my contact solution in my grad coat and got on my bike and drove to Sarah's, picked her up on her bike, and we started driving towards the apartment. We actually like ran into each other, our bikes toppled over, things came out. I mean, we were nervous. And of course it happened right in front of another brethren's home and we're like, oh my God, like, like we've got to get it, collect all our stuff back up. <laughs> Made it to the apartment and checked in there. Of course, we have nothing. Absolutely, we have nothing but literally what is stuffed inside our coats. And we knew we needed to call our parents. And so we had asked the landlord if we could use her phone. And she said, well, like, no, like she didn't, she didn't, oh, she didn't want us using her phone. So she sent us to this elderly couple upstairs to yours use their phones we knocked on their door and we said like you know we just moved in downstairs and like are we able to use your phone and they said oh yeah yeah we walk in they hand us a cordless phone (laughs) (laughs) oh my god I've never seen a cordless phone before in my life and we're both like standing in their like bedroom with this cordless phone and neither Sarah I knew how to use it wow (laughs) and so we had to ask them like like can you show us how to use this phone (laughs) that's amazing so we I call I called home and um both my mom and my dad got on the phone and I had told them that like we're not coming home that we I had left I'd left a, a letter on my um bed for them and my dad hung up the phone on me didn't nothing just hung up the phone on me and um obviously my mom was distraught and so we hung up Sarah did the same phone call and I went later on I went I went home to I needed to grab my stuff so this was we hadn't I'm pretty sure we hadn't left Maple Creek yet and Don Boyer was waiting at the house for me to get my stuff and that man yelled at me like yelled at literally screaming and pointing his his finger at my mom and literally telling me that like, look at what I'm doing to her. Look at what I'm doing to her. And if she dies because of what I, for me leaving, I'll have that on my conscience forever. That that would be my responsibility if my mom dies. And it was a really hard thing. I just wanted to get my stuff out of there and get out. Um, it was hard to walk. It was hard to walk through that day, though, and have someone yell at you like that. I ended up leaving Maple Creek. And we went to Medicine Hat. And I think Medicine Hat is, once I got into Medicine Hat, that's kind of where I really started finding a social circle, really started getting out. I, I used alcohol, obviously, to, um, that was my, my daily medicine in order how to integrate with people. I had no clue how to integrate with people. I'd had a couple jobs in Maple Creek, but it was when I got to Medicine Hat that I had my fun. Like it was, it was the bars. It was the bars. It was the dancing. It was just the freedom of dancing with a group of people and just laughing. It was, 
I was I was at the bars probably five out of seven nights a week. And I can I can uh, I can attest I did similar stuff and there was something about watching people happening dance. I wasn't a dancer myself, but I was drawn to. I was like, this is fun. This is people having fun. You know? Yeah, it was. Like, it, was it was so much fun. I remember my first concert, and then I. What? what who was the first concert? Um. Sawyer Brown, I think it was. It was a country one. Oh, okay. It was, it was a country. I think it was Sawyer Brown. Um, I ended up working at the Moose Lodge in, in, in Medicine Hat, and I met the most amazing family. And so I kind of had a substitute mom. She's actually who walked me down the aisle. And she really, she really looked out for me. Um, after I had my first son, <clears throat> I went into a really bad depression. And she was the one that took me to the doctors and uh, got medication. And, but it, I had the same experience like you did. It was just so shocking of people that were so warm and inviting and just the amount of freedom that comes where you can start taking accountability for yourself, right? It's you start to develop this relationship with yourself that seems so odd because you're so trained to be, you have to check in for everything right? Where all of a sudden you're, you're now, you're taking responsibility for yourself by checking in with yourself. And I think that's the biggest thing to this date that I gained is that you get to know yourself, the, the hurt parts, the jovial parts, the completely quirky, nerdy parts that we never got to experience inside there, right? Like, because you're so, I mean, in our house, anyhow, we were the bottom of the totem pole. So we were, everything was monitored in our home, including, you know, if too many people are over playing games when, you know, so for me to get out there and just dance and just feel the freedom of, yeah, this is what life is all about. This is what life is all about. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I feel like, and tell me if you can relate, but I feel like there was just, for me, there was so many moments of, oh, wow. Like that was something yeah. I just like, I felt that all the time. I was just like, oh, wow, this is new. Oh, this is new. Like, and, and if you're listening and you're a Plymouth Brethren member, I want to tell you something. All of us here, we've probably experienced more things in life than 1000 or 10,000 Brethren lives. They're so boring and there's so much to experience in life. Like so much, it just goes on and on and on. And it's not evil. It's not evil, and it's not worldly. It's no. it's not. It's about being human and having these human experiences and being able to feel what it's like to feel joy and um, just all of those incredible emotions that you don't get to feel inside there. And I know that a lot of them are going to say, "Well, things have changed in there. They have changed in there," but you're still under a dictatorship. You are still under a dictatorship. Yes. Yeah. And let me add, I mean, what Lane said about our lives were 10,000 lives inside there. That is so true. And let me tell you, if you're in the Brethren at the moment and you're listening to this, let me tell you what you should be afraid of. You only have one life. And if you spend that life, the whole of that life in the Brethren, you will have wasted it. And it's gone forever. Yep. And there's a little brainwashing thing that the brethren will push on you. And I'm talking to those people that are in right now, hopefully listening to this. Um, and it's guilt. 
and that you should feel bad about doing this stuff. And you don't need to. That is just like putting a stone on your own back. If you want to do something and it doesn't hurt anyone else, you should do it, you know? And one thing that um, we do have to talk about is, um, Cheryl, I think one thing we need to talk about today is suicide. Yeah. And we need to, we need brethren members that, that listen to this to realize that there's phone numbers that you need to call if you're ever feeling like harming yourself. Because I know what it's like to think that there's nothing worth living for and it just needs to end. But those are lies that we tell ourselves because there's so many more things to experience, right? And there's going to be good ones. There's going to be bad ones. And, and it's always at the shitty times, right? When we think that there's just no exit. But there is. And it's just being at peace with yourself, loving yourself. And I have a quote for today. And my quote is from one of my favorite people, Alan Watts. And the quote is, saints need sinners. <laughs> and I like that one a lot. And I think it's important that that on the topic of this suicide, that is, we've had a lot of a lot of stuff come through onto our laps lately about the teachings inside inside the PBCC, and um, this this thinking that it's better to take your own life and go to heaven inside there versus leave and go to hell. I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, you are not going to go to hell if you come out here. If anything, you're going to feel what heaven feels like. You do not need to take your life. There is many, many, many people out here that are willing to help you, comfort you, help guide you into a transition of living out here. Do not take your life. Don't do not believe Bruce Hales and what he says that is better to have died than to have sinned. It's false. It's absolutely false. It's brainwashing. Yeah. And, and he's not the first cult leader to say this. He's not the first cult leader to teach these terrible things. Okay. Know that if you're in there, know that this isn't the first time. And we're going to post some phone numbers um, on this show that are going to be you're going to be able to reach out if you reach that level of despair. Okay. Um, yeah. We're going to post those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Does anybody else want to say anything to wrap this up or maybe we should, maybe we should like end it with like one, what's like the biggest thing, um, like the biggest positive thing that you gain from leaving. Vacation. For me, it's family. For me, it's that it's the feeling of true, authentic connection of family. Um, and not that I don't think I had that in 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 the PBCC, but it was it was very controlled. I never got to feel my family the way that I feel the family that I've created. Um, I the way I get to love my children was never how I was able to be loved. My parents didn't love me the way that I was able to love my children. The freedom of seeing your own children um, be able to conquer things and be able to teach them things that are never, you're never allowed to learn those things inside the PBCC. So for me, for one thing, I gained 
like the biggest positive thing I gained was what family truly is. And that sense of complete and utter connectedness. That's awesome. I think that's really cool. And for me, I didn't have to live through what I watched your parents go through mm -hmm. and what all of those parents out there went through. They lived every day in mortal fear that one of their kids was going to decide to leave them and to go and experience all these things. Um, for us, it was about keeping our family together and we never had to live through that horrific um, breaking apart of families. Mm -hmm. um, my kids have never looked back. My kids, their whole outlook um, and, and the way they adapted was just amazing. Um, and there is a whole support system out here. Like you're told all your life that if something bad happens and you've left the brethren, there's not going to be a support system. You're not going to have friends. Um, and we, we have had some bad things happen and there was always, that's life. that's life, that's life. And in those really tough moments, there was our church family here. Um, at, at one really tough spot in life, my whole entire youth group from the church was sitting in the hospital waiting room. I'm just sitting there with my kids. There was 21 of the youth group sitting in a hospital waiting room, sitting with my kids. They sat there all day. Um, wow. So don't let anybody ever tell you you won't have a support because you do. You do. Yeah. And I would say if you're inside and you're thinking about leaving and you want to be, you know, and you're still in that mindset that the brethren have drilled into you about money equals happiness, then don't leave, stay there and become rich. But if you want to experience <laughs> love, okay. But we like, will laugh at you if you do. Exactly. <laughs> because, you know, you can have all the money in the world, but um, if you don't know how to, if you have no imagination, right? As Alan Watts says, then you can't, you'll never figure out how to spend it. So my point is that if you want to experience things in life, and you're inside and you want to know what real love is like i'll tell you something there's more love on the outside of that yeah. cult than there is yeah. on the inside that's it's the truth much more very much so very very yeah. much so yeah yeah i could i could share um, probably one of the most maybe the most amazing day of my life which was um this was four or five years after i'd left the brethren and i've been through all sorts of um experiences mostly um due to the brethren trying to pursue me legally and cause me all kinds of problems um and, and i was i was in i was in regina in canada um i had to be there for legal reasons um i had to be there for a year and in that period i'd, I'd started dating online with um the jamaican girl who i since married we, we hadn't met in person but we'd been we'd been talking every night online and finally, I, I got my release. I could leave Canada. Um, the legal cases were all wrapped up. And this was right in the middle of winter. I think it was January. Um, and so I, I'd finished with my apartment and I cycled to the airport and it was minus 25 or something. <laughs> I was all bundled up. I left oh. my bicycle on the railing outside the Regina airport so someone else could use it because I couldn't take it on the plane. I got on the plane and, and headed for Jamaica, which I'd, I'd never been there in my life. 
Um, and so I went from <laughs> minus 20 Regina, um, climbed off the plane in, in Montego Bay, and there was my fiancé waiting for me. So that by that evening, we were sitting on the hotel veranda with a, a very nice meal looking out over the Caribbean and the, the blue ski, the blue sea and the blue sky. And yeah, that was a that was a wonderful day. That's and um, yeah, and it's got better since. So that that would not have happened if I'd remained in the brethren. <laughs> no. What an awesome <laughs> note to end on. Yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, and you've got a baby on the way. We have, we have. Yeah, that will have to be another episode. <laughs> I'll make an introduction. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, uh, thanks okay, for joining everyone. us. Thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, and we'll talk to everyone again. Much love. To share your story or be a guest on the show, email info.getalife at proton.me.